The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have a special study tonight. We've been going through the book of Romans, and I'm going to zero in on one verse, Romans 8.13, and be leaning on a 17th century Puritan theologian named John Owen, who wrote an entire treatise on the mortification of sin and believers. So we're in, in the topic of sanctification, and Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the handbook in the Bible on how we can grow in Christlikeness. And uh, Owen just did us a great service uh, centuries ago on doing an extended uh, meditation and treatise on putting sin to death by the Spirit. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to zero in on, on Romans 8.13 and on what John Owen did with it and just walk through it. I don't think we're going to finish this handout tonight, and I don't anticipate necessarily going through it. Uh, next week, but just for one night, uh, we'll just walk through it and see what we can get out of it. So let's open in prayer and we'll start. So Father, thank you for this evening. I thank you for Wednesdays where we can gather uh, in the evening and study your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the richness of church history, the richness of, of brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone ahead of us and lived faithful lives for the glory of God. And I thank you for this uh, brother, John Owen, uh, who served us all by writing so carefully on the topic of putting sin to death by the Spirit. So be with us tonight as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. This will be a little different. Uh, ordinarily, I write discussion questions and I ask you guys questions. So what I'd like to do is uh, just walk through this material and I would love to stop and ask, do you have any questions, comments along the way? And that's where you can pitch in. But it's going to be a different kind of style tonight. But I think that it'll still be helpful. Now, what Owen does at the beginning of his treatise is zeroes in on Romans 8.13, which in the authorized version, what we know as the King James Version, uh, which he was working with um, as he was writing for his English-speaking audience, uh, says this, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Or a more contemporary translation, New American Standard says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then Owen does some observations on the text. He just works on what the text says. First of all, there is a duty prescribed. Mortify the deeds of the body. Mortify the deeds of the body. The persons to whom it is described or prescribed in uh, the KJV is ye or you, you who are reading this. There is a promise next to that duty, you shall live. The cause of the means of the performance of the duty is the Spirit, if ye through the Spirit, dot, dot, dot. And there's a conditionality of the whole. There's a duty, a means, or a promise contained in the word if. Uh, the word if, if you live after the flesh, you shall die, but if through the Spirit you mortify. The use of the word if means there is an uncertainty of the event concerning you, all right? The condition is absolutely necessary to the outcome. If you meet the condition, then you'll get the promise. If you don't, you won't. But there is a certainty of the connection, all right? So he uses an illustration uh, saying to a sick person, if you would take such a medicine, you will be well. Uh, so therefore, there's an absolutely certain connection between mortifying the deeds of the body and living. 
okay? An absolutely certain connection. If you are mortifying the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live, both now and eternally, spiritually. Only Christians can do this. That's what he's saying, fundamentally. Now, there's an emphasis given on who must mortify, the ye. Who are we talking about? Well, these are the people of whom it is spoken in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who must mortify. Um, they are those of whom it is said they are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Uh, they have been made alive or quickened by the spirit of Christ. These are the people who must mortify. And so then Owen derives this doctrinal point. The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. The choicest believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. I fear that some people just rest on Romans 8.1 and are satisfied with it. There's no condemnation for us, right? But they forget the rest of the duty of the chapter. The fact that there's an ongoing Christian life to be lived and mortification of sin is essential to that life. So we have to go on beyond just that initial statement. There's no condemnation. It is essential to focus on the efficient cause of mortification, namely the Holy Spirit. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. By Him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. Now here's a key statement. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Quite a statement. Let's uh, walk through it again. Mortification from a self-strength. What does that mean? A self-strength. Okay, you're on your own. You're going to do it by yourself. Carried on by ways of self-invention. What does that phrase mean to you? Self-invention. Creativity. Coming up with new and inventive ways. All right? Unto the end of a self-righteousness. What does that mean? If you're successful in your mortification, you'll become prideful. You'll be proud of your own righteousness. He says it is the essence, the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Everybody's trying to become better people, more moral, you know, live better lives. This is what false religions do. It's all about moralism and this kind of effort. Now, there's some extreme examples of this. Uh, the medieval Roman Catholic Church and then on beyond through the Reformation, Counter-Reformation. Um, the Jesuits were started by a man named Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, he, was, he was a sick individual in a lot of ways. All right, He devised a belt that had nails, sharp nail points, which he turned inward on his own flesh and put on himself so that it was tearing his flesh as he moved throughout the day. And so blood is just kind of streaming down his body every day by this belt that he was wearing. Now, why would any individual do such a thing to themselves? Because they're crazy. All right, let's just move on from Ignatius of Loyola. All right. 
Well, unfortunately, we can't, he can't be dismissed so lightly. His writings are influential. The Jesuits are one of the most impactful movements in the history of Roman Catholicism. Uh, they sent missionaries all over the world. It was Jesuit missionaries that first went to Japan and all that. They, they really let out. They were doing missions long before, um, long before the Protestants were sending them out. Unfortunately, you can't call it genuine missions because they were going out in the spirit of the, uh, the anti-gospel. Uh, that came as a result of the Counter-Reformation. They were not taking the true gospel. But Ignatius of Loyola was energetic in all this. But, I mean, think about it more. As you understand the mentality of medieval Roman Catholicism, why would you think an individual would devise such a nasty belt and put it on their body every day? Self-punishment, okay? Tell me more. Why would they do self-punishment? I mean, the sense is, you know, you can forestall the eternal judgment of God or the long-range judgment of God in purgatory by a little bit of suffering now. I think Owen was very well aware of these kinds of efforts. I think he had them in mind when he wrote this sentence. Self-invention. Loyola came up with this. You know, Ignatius of Loyola, he came up with this. It was, you don't get this in the Bible. Um, it's just something he came up with. He devised it and put it on every day. And, um, you know, in this way, he uh, thought to keep his passions, his lusts under control, etc. But what Owen is saying is it does not achieve anything. Harsh treatment of the body, Colossians 2, does not achieve actual purity, doesn't achieve actual holiness. So to go back to what Owen's saying, it can only be done by the Holy Spirit, only by the power of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit alone is effectual in mortification. All right, so what is it? What is the mortification of uh, sin, of the deeds of the flesh? Uh, what is this duty to which we are commanded? Well, first of all, what is meant by the body in the verse? Uh, this is the same as the flesh in other verses. It's the sin nature, the indwelling sin, the corrupted flesh, says Owen, a seed and instrument of lust and distempered affections. What we've been calling the mortal body or the body of sin in another phrase that's what he has in mind here, what Paul has in mind. What is meant by the deeds of the body? The word deeds definitely uh, denotes the outward actions chiefly, the motions of the body that are sinful. Saying sinful words, doing sinful actions, things like that. That's the deeds of the body. But he goes deeper than that. It's also the inward root from which the deeds of the flesh spring. The ax is laid to the root of the tree. So every lust intends to conceive and bring forth a perfect sin, even if it ends up aborted before that end. So there are, there are root causes in the soul, in the mind and the heart, that lead to sinful actions of the body. There's a direct connection. Jesus said, make a tree good and the fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, the fruit will be bad, for the tree is recognized by its fruit. So actions are the fruit to some degree, but they stem from inner corruptions inner thoughts and affections that are, he called distempered, sick. So it comes out of that. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. It's a connection from the heart and then out comes the mouth. We could, we could say the same thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the body moves, the body acts. Not just the speaking of the mouth, but in all respects. If you do something wrong, you first thought wrong and loved wrong. There's something wrong with your thinking and your heart before. Yeah, he doesn't mean it in a good way. He's not meaning it in a good way. I mean, I think we would know Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery with her in your heart. 
but your, your self, your sin self, is not satisfied with committing adultery with her in your heart, it would press on to the actual act. All right? So David on the roof of his palace isn't satisfied with just lusting after Bathsheba. He sent a servant to go get her. See what I'm saying? He's, he's going to press on and keep going. That's what he means by that. So he doesn't mean it in a positive way. All right, um, what then is meant by mortifying the deeds of the, of the body? To kill a man, says Owen, or any other living thing, is to take away the principle of strength, vigor, and power, so they cannot act or exert. So it is in this case. So the mortification of indwelling sin, remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the word, works or deeds of the flesh is a constant duty of unbelievers. So, of, of believers, sorry. So the idea of mortification is to weaken sins so to weaken them so greatly that they cannot produce their actions, all right? They are still existing, as we, and he'll talk about that later. You can't kill sin categorically. But it's so weakened by, by your efforts and mortification that, that it can't bring forth those habits of sin that it had formally brought forth. That's what mortification me means. Uh, what we call death by starvation. You're just weakening uh, the sin until it, uh, it's, it doesn't cause you much trouble. What is the promise attached to this duty? It is life. You shall live. The life uh, promise is opposed to the death threatened and the clause foregoing. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. The word may go beyond our eternal life in heaven, but include our ongoing experience of spiritual life here on earth with Christ. Thus it means you shall live. You shall have a good, vigorous, comfortable spiritual life while you are here and obtain eternal life hereafter. So like Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes uh, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So that abundant life, that full, rich, fruitful life Jesus came to give, I think that's also the idea here. So then Owen gives us this beautiful statement. The vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. The vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. So what does he mean by vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life? What do those words mean to you? Vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life. Okay, maturity. If you, if you say of an individual, a young man or young woman, they are a vigorous person. Healthy, all right? So energetic. All right, vigor and power might be synonyms on close, but you know, there's a slight shade of difference. So if you want to be vigorous in your spiritual life, you want to be powerful in your spiritual life, and if you want to be comforted in your spiritual life, have a comfortable life in, in a positive sense, be comforted by your faith, etc. Uh, conversely, uh, the opposite of vigor and power would be, would be an emaciated state, weakened spiritually. All right, not powerful, not, not energetic, and not comforted. Actually, probably tormented by a guilty conscience, right? Your assurance is weak. You're not sure where you're at with Jesus, all that. Well, that's what happens if you don't mortify. If you don't mortify the deeds of the flesh, that will be the condition. Conversely, you want a vigorous, powerful, and comfortable spiritual life, you must mortify. There's no other alternative. That's what he's getting. It's not an option for like higher-level Christians. This is an assertion he's making for all people. And again, all of it's based on um, Romans 8.13. It's not Owen, it's Paul, Romans 8.13. If you live according to the uh, flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the, of the uh, body, you'll live. All right, that's chapter one. 
By the way, I want to tell you something about Owen. He's extremely difficult to read. It, it's brutal. It's brutal. I've given you some illustrations and translations and cross-references. That's me translating Owen into English. All right? I want you to know he wrote in English, mostly. Um, thing about Owen, when I say mostly, he'll just throw in Aramaic phrases, untranslated, right in there. So I don't know who his audience is. All right? Untranslated Hebrew, just right in, just mixed in there. It's clearly an academic mind. Um, he, he had a brilliant and organized mind, but he was not a good writer. As a matter of fact, he's one of the worst writers of all the great theologians in history. Calvin was an excellent writer. <laughs> I don't, all right? But uh, I don't really know Hebrew that well either. I did at one point. But at any rate, no, he's not a clear writer. He doesn't, he doesn't write clearly. It's convoluted. Lots of subordinate clauses. Hard to read. But when you walk through it and you finally can understand it, it's so helpful, so powerful. So I've done my best to translate Owen into English for you guys here. Chapter 2. The duty of the best believers and the evil of neglecting this duty. This is what he's dealing with in chapter 2. So let's unfold the key principle that we've already seen. The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. This is a duty for all of us. No one is exempt. Everyone in this room, no matter what you think of Owen, John Owen, you need to mortify the deeds of the body. That's all. We are all in the same boat. Owen's just here to help us. If he doesn't help, then don't use him. But you still need to mortify. It's in Romans 8.13. It's what you have to do. Choicest believers who are surely free ought to make it their business to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Supporting text, another verse, Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Same concept. Put to death these sins. Put them to death. To whom is Paul speaking in Colossians? To those who have been raised with Christ, who will appear with him in glory. They are the ones who must put sin to death. He's saying this is a normal function for all Christians. Everyone has to do it. All right, this is for even the most mature. So Owen says this, you must mortify. You must make it your daily work. You must be constantly at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't say, I want out, right? Be like being in the middle of a battle and you're in a foxhole and there's bullets all around and you fought well for about four hours and finally you throw down your weapon and say, that's it, I've done enough. What do you think is going to happen? You'll get killed. You can't opt out of the war. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with him will not excuse you from this work. So we have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. You're not exempt. You have to mortify while you live. You won't have to do this in heaven, praise God, but you have to do it now. All right. By the way, when I was reading this and I gave this to the guys when I was doing the BFL on slaying temptation, the images of, uh, you know, the statement, be killing sinners, sin will be killing you. I got the picture of going through a jungle in India or something like that and seeing a black mama snake or some terrible snake and snake sees you and you see the snake and suddenly the snake comes at you fast, quick. And somehow, I don't know how, but you grab the snake around the, you know, right under the jaws, the gaping jaws and you're wrestling and the snake's writhing and you're, you know, it's not a good time. And, and you're fighting, fighting and after a while, 
you say, all right, I think this has been long enough, all right? Uh, it's been a good contest. Imagine speaking to the snakes. It's been, hey, we've had a good fight. I mean, you're a worthy adversary. Tell you what, I'm going to put you back down on the, on the path. Why don't you go home to your little snake family, have, a, have your snake dinner, whatever it is you do, and I'm going to go home the other way, okay? Put it down and let go and turn and walk away. Well, what's going to happen? You're dead. That's you and sin. Sin's not going to give you a break. It's not going to take a vacation. It's not going to leave you alone because you've had a hard day. So you just have no choice. You have to mortify or, or, or sin will be coming at you. You have to be killing sin or sin will be coming at you. All right, so everyone has to do this. And, and we see this in John 15. Someone read this for me. Give my voice a break for a minute. John 15, 1 through 3. It's the same Greek word. He cleans the people who are already clean. The only way to understand that is the difference between justification cleaning and sanctification cleaning, right? You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That's a positional cleanness through faith in Christ. But he's going to clean you in an ongoing way. That's the ongoing work of pruning that the Father does to the vine. Does that make sense? So the idea is, you know, and the same thing with the foot washing, remember? Remember how he's, he's going to wash their feet and he's, you know, he's bathing in it and he comes to Peter. Peter, Peter's such a great guy, isn't he? Isn't he wonderful? The things he's like, just a minute, Jesus, all right? Are you going to wash my feet? It's just a, one of these great moments in Peter's life. I always picture him as like the seventh of the 12 and like six of them are done. Now he gets to Peter. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus. Like, no, I'm going to skip you, Peter. I'm going to wash everybody else's feet, but not yours. It doesn't make any sense. But he says, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you do not understand what I'm doing now, but later you'll understand. And then Peter says, he has the gall to say, you will never wash my feet. Peter's always trying to take control of the situation. You never take control of the situation with Jesus. You're not in control. He is. If he wants to wash your feet, he's going to wash your feet. And so Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You get a sense that there's a symbolism going on here with the foot washing at that moment? If I don't wash you, you can't be with me. Now we know bigger than just the moment. He's saying, I have to cleanse you of your sin or you can't go to heaven. We know that's what he means. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter again tries to take control even of that statement. Fine then, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Not that either, Peter. You're not in charge of anything. Just be quiet and let me wash your feet. But anyway, there it is. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus said, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. So what does he mean? Same thing that he's saying here in John 15. You are clean by your faith in me. But not every one of you is. He's talking about Judas. And Judas was a devil. He was not clean. He was not a believer. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. You are clean, but your feet need to be washed. And I think, again, that's justification, sanctification. Everyone needs this ongoing work. This is part of that that work, that mortification. All right, Paul's own example. um, Did this, uh, Wes and I did this today in the podcast. 
Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I myself may be disqualified, may not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is in subjection. He keeps his body under subjection, strict discipline, so that he doesn't get disqualified, right? So John Owen writes about this. And if this were the work and business of Paul, who is so incomparably exalted in grace, revelations, enjoyments, privileges, consolations, above the ordinary measure of believers, where may we possibly bottom an exemption from this work and duty whilst we are in this world? It's a how much more argument. If Paul needed it, you need it more than Paul. I'll say amen to that. Paul's a better Christian than me, further along in grace than me. He still needed to mortify, and he took it very, very seriously. All right, why is this constantly necessary? Well, indwelling sin always abides in us while we're in the world. Therefore, it's always to be mortified. Owen refutes any possibility of perfectionism in this world against those who have taught that it is possible. We could reach a state in the Christian life where we don't need to mortify. That's just not possible. That would be perfection, right? You can't have perfection. And Paul himself said in Philippians 3.12, not that I ever uh, already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What does that mean? Christ Jesus took hold of you for perfection and he will have it, but not in this world. And he says, I've not attained it. I've not attained perfection, but I press after it. I aim for perfection, and someday I will be perfect in the next world. But in the meantime, I haven't attained it yet. So no, no perfection is possible in this world. Now it being our duty to mortify, to be killing sin whilst we live, while still in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he stops striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. Not only does sin live in us, but it's also acting, still laboring to bring forth, sorry, the deeds of the flesh. It's energetic in us. So Owen said this, when sin leaves us alone, then we may leave sin alone. And when will that be? When you die. I mean, right up until death or the second coming of Christ, sin is going to be troubling you. It's never going to leave you alone. So you got to be at it. You got to, you got to mortify forever, as, I mean, while we live in this world. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. I mean, you can say, hey, I'm doing really well. No, you're not. <laughs> if you ever think, hey, I'm doing great. I, I've had a really, really good week on mortification, something like that. You can, it just never lets up. Then it's other sins coming after you. So... Uh, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And the very thing we saw in Romans 7, um, it is sin living in me that does it. There's this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Who can say that he ever had anything to do with God or for God that indwelling sin had not a hand in corrupting of what he did? If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish in proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we accept, uh, expect sorry, a comfortable outcome? There is not a day. But sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. So how are you hearing this? I mean, this sounds kind of dreary. It's like, oh my goodness. Uh, but what are your thoughts? I mean, you you never can take a day off from mortification. Um, any responses? This is a call for constant warfare. 
Okay, well, let me ask you a question. How does justification by faith alone, apart from works, factor into all this? Is it related at all? Justification is forgiveness, a right standing with God, a seen to be perfectly righteous by God. How does it relate to this? Is it related at all? Okay, so the moment you're born again, you're justified. When do you stop being justified? Never. So that means the whole time you're doing this, you are justified. The whole time you're doing this, you're forgiven. The whole time you're doing this, you're seen to be perfectly righteous in Jesus. Should that matter to you? It's everything. Because other than that, it's nothing but depressing. If we were standing before God based on our mortification, how would that be for you? Would you want to do that? Absolutely not. But you're not. You're standing based on Jesus' purity, His holiness, His perfection, not our own. So they must go together. You've got to have justification and sanctification together. What I found practically is I would read a lot of the Puritans, especially on Owen, on sanctification. And then I'd have to go back and read some Luther on justification. Just as a remedy to me getting depressed. Because <laughs> I didn't think the Puritans were getting it wrong. I knew I needed to take mortification more seriously. But you've got to know the rock is under your feet the whole time. You're on solid ground. You've been adopted. You're forgiven. Your, your standing is based on faith, not on works. And yet you have works to do. That's all he's saying. You do have works to do, but the whole time you're doing it, you're forgiven. And the whole thing is you're, we're going to fail, all right? We don't need to fail. I mean, one of the things we learn in Romans 6 is you don't ever need to sin again. There's no sin that you can ever say, I had no choice, had to do that one, and the Holy Spirit agrees. But all the other ones, you're responsible for them. He'll never say that to you but we're going to fail. And to me, as a pastor, the essence of my teaching ministry here, both the pulpit, Wednesday night, Thursday men's Bible study, is the proper understanding of both justification and sanctification. Not the one or the other, but both of them together, because that is salvation. That's real salvation. And so that you would continually understand you're forgiven for your sins by faith in Christ, but you make progress in your Christianity through sanctification, and this is the negative part of sanctification. It's the bad stuff, it's putting sin to death. Positive is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the, the imitation aspect of sanctification. So this is the negative side, but it's essential. And, and just like you're saying, I think, there, I think a lot of churches, evangelical churches, just don't teach this. I don't know if they think it's negative or something like that, but I'm just saying, I don't, sin is negative. And this is the remedy, go ahead. It is encouraging. We need, to, we need to keep that in mind. We need to constantly be meditating on both sides of this. We have a great high priest. His blood has been shed once for all. Nothing more is needed from God than the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. When it talks, you know, what we're just saying about failing, when, it caught, when we're talking about your sin, having actually violated God's law, there is only one remedy, and that is the blood of Jesus. Faith in the blood of Jesus. But if we're talking about your habits, your tendencies, your behavior, we're talking now about sanctification. So we'll keep moving. Sin uh, not only was uh, uh, will be constantly acting, but if let alone will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. Sin is relentless. It's never satisfied. It's always wanting to press on to terrible things. Someone read Galatians 5, 19 through 21. 
as you look at that list, are all those sins equal in your mind or not? Are they all like equally common? All right, Jim, what would you say? No, I would not say they're equally common. Yeah, uh, look at hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Those are all like horizontal sins that break up relationships. Are they all equal? No, they're not. Fits of rage is worse than some of the other things. You know what I'm saying? Like, we could, you could seethe and be irritated with a brother or sister in Christ and keep it inward and go home for the day, right? But if you have a fit of rage, people are still talking about it kind of weeks later. All right. So, and Jim, you're right. Witchcraft, orgies, um, you know, uh, et cetera. But it's all on the list. And sin would press you on to those extreme sins if it could. It, it just, it's relentless. It keeps pushing hard. Sin, all, Owen wrote, wrote this, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if allowed to have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. It is like the grave that is never satisfied, and herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin. What does that mean? Sin isn't telling you the truth about where it wants to take you. It wants to take you right to the end. It wants to take you to hell. So uh, sin is deceitful, Hebrews 3.13. Sin makes its progress little by little, by degrees, and thus has a hardening effect. The soul comforts itself that at least the maximum sin in that category hasn't happened yet. Insensible the fact that the soul is now much closer than ever before to committing those great scandalous soul-destroying sins. You're not aware of the incremental progress, the hardening uh, effect that sins had on you. But you're comforting yourself with the fact that at least you didn't do X. That's uh, the deceptiveness of sin. Now, this is one of the main reasons why the Spirit is given to us, that we might put sin to death. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit was contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. The Spirit has been put in you, in part, to fight your sin, to help you put sin to death. And again, Romans 8, 13, the very passage we're looking at. Uh, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. To be led by the Spirit in this context means to be led to mortify. The Spirit is leading you to put sin to death. He's leading you to do this, uh, etc. Negligence in this duty contradicts, contradicts the gradual transformation Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. In people who do not mortify, the order is reversed. Inwardly wasting away, outwardly renewed day by day. Uh, and then he used an analogy, which we don't have time for. You can read it. Uh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, another verse. This cannot be done without a daily mortification of sin. Sin sets itself against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow to. Let not that man think um, to make any progress in holiness who walks not over the belly of his lust. He who does not kill sin in this way takes no steps toward his journey's end. So whatever progress you want to make in sanctification, sin will fight you every step of the way. It's going to be hard, a hard journey. You want to make progress in uh, righteousness in some way, sin's going to fight you. All right, do many or only a few people do this? Well, it was just like you said a moment ago. It was true back in Owen's day. Most people weren't mortifying back then. They just weren't, all right? 
There is a noise of religion and religious duties in every corner, preaching in abundance. But now if you will take the measure of them by this great discriminating grace of, of Christians, namely mortification, perhaps you'll find their numbers not so multiplied. So this has always been hard. People always have got out of this, tried not to, not to do it. And this is probably why the gospel has made such slow progress to the ends of the earth geographically, why missions hasn't been as successful, because people have not been mortifying. They've not been putting sin to death, etc. All right, what evils attend every unmortified professor of Christian faith? Well, that individual has slight thoughts of sin. The root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. You can just sin and it doesn't bother you. You sin and it doesn't trouble you. You basically eat bad food and, it, and your stomach's not upset. Well, that's a problem. That's what he's saying. That if you're not mortified, you're not, it's, it's not going to be a big deal for you to sin. Uh, and to others, it hardens them. Unbelievers uh, may think that they are in as good condition as the best professors of Christ, since these professors are living an unmortified lifestyle little different from the world. In other words, the holier the church is, the, the clearer the gap in the way we live from the way non-Christians live. This, that gap creates a tension that gives opportunities for the gospel, for evangelism. Why do you live so differently than us? Why do you act so differently from us? It causes unbelievers to ask you to give a reason for the way you live, to give a reason for the hope that you have. But if we don't mortify, we're just like the unbelievers in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the way we buy, in the way we, 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 uh, we entertain ourselves. It's all the same. And so there's not the power for evangelism. Uh, unmortified professors of Christ deceive unbelievers into thinking all they need to do is to come to their level and it will be well with them. It's a different kind of Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. All right, chapter 3, the work of the Spirit. Now let's talk about how the Spirit does it. Uh, the great sovereign cause of all true mortification is the Holy Spirit. The principal efficient cause of the performance of this duty is the Spirit. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. Human strivings apart from the Spirit are false and will fail. He, the Spirit, is only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without Him are a thing uh, as of naught, and He is the great efficient of it. He works in us as he pleases. So he's dealing, uh, he deals with Roman Catholic mortification, uh, uh, Catholic monks, holy men who resorted to physical torments. By the way, Ignatius of Loyola, it's just a, an extreme version of stuff that everybody was doing. Like if you watch the Luther, the recent Luther movie, people are going up the, the, the staircase on their knees and praying prayers, doing all, they're doing physically hard things, causing themselves physical pain. This was the normal religion of medieval Catholicism. It wasn't an aberration. It's just Ignatius of Loyola's nail, nail belt was just an extreme version of it. But people were doing this kind of stuff all the time. All right, Harsh treatment of the body to become holy. They would make vows and, and they would have long times of fasting, penances. They, all of that was built on this kind of approach. But Colossians says those regulations, those harsh treatments of the body, uh, really have no power in um, restraining sensual indulgence. All right, instead it is the special work of the Spirit, for it is promised by God to be given to us for this work. We talked about this verse last time in this passage. Someone read Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Okay, so I mentioned this last time. There is a power of the Spirit in this verse toward holiness. You see, I'll put my Spirit in you and He will move you. See that? He will move you. 
to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How does that happen? So just if I could just ask you, you think about how does the Spirit move people to obey the law of God? Indwelling Holy Spirit. Seems like a very forceful thing. I'll put my Spirit in you and He will move you to follow my decrees and be careful. Yeah, I mean, one clear example of this, again, I don't mean to pound on Simon Peter tonight, but let's just go ahead. I don't think he's going to mind. Um, but you remember how, how prideful he was? Um, if you consider this statement, um, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. What do you find prideful about that statement? What is Peter claiming? I'm better than every other follower of Christ. Certainly better than these other 11 guys. Even if they fall away, I'm telling you, I won't. All right? So he's a very prideful person. Do you see that in general in Peter? A kind of a pridefulness, a self-confidence? Definitely. Willingness to contradict Jesus, we've seen that. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. That's Mark's gospel. All right, I find that interesting, the twice, the rooster crowing twice. As I was memorizing Mark and I thought about the twice, do you feel like the first rooster crowing was like a shot across the bow? Kind of like, he's in the middle of denying Jesus. He's not finished it, but the first rooster crowing happens. Blew right through that stop sign, right? Maybe he didn't even hear it. But he heard the second one, then the rooster crows second time, and and he has denied him three times. Now, if you look at it, it's a very ugly scene because it says in Matthew's gospel that Peter began to call down curses on himself, right? So he's calling down curses on himself if he ever knew this man, Jesus of Nazareth, all right? Then the rooster crows, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus was being moved from one location to the next. And right at that moment, he looked right at Peter. Just at the moment the rooster crowed, everything came together. What do you think that was like for Peter? I I know what he did. At that moment, he left and went outside and wept bitterly, right? What does that mean? He went outside and wept bitterly. He was ashamed of what he had done, of what had happened, wondering how it happened, how it got so quickly to that point. Now, here's what I want to tell you. The combination, Peter remembered what Jesus had said, the rooster brought the memory of the prediction up, all of that came together, Jesus looking right at him. How does that happen now by the Holy Spirit in our lives? We're not going to do exactly the same thing, but how... How does the Spirit cause us to see Jesus looking right at us at those terrible moments, those vulnerable moments, so that we weep bitterly? That's conviction, isn't it? We're convicted. We see that we have sinned against Jesus. It's very personal, you see? That's why David wrote Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. It's a sense of I'm focused completely on Christ. And, and you get a sense, you know, Judgment Day, you're going to have to give him an account for everything you did in the body, whether good or bad. What's that going to be like? To look him in the face and tell him why you did it, what you did. It's the Spirit's task to minister that moment to you and to cause it to be painful to you. 
Why would that be? Why would the Spirit want it to be painful to you? So you won't do it again. It's supposed to hurt. How long do you think Peter remembered the pain of that moment? I think the rest of his life. Was that essential to his own sanctification? Did he need to be humbled? Oh, he needed to be humbled. He was a very confident individual. And that, that was a very, very serious, painful you know, work in him. And again, you're going to get the pain aspect there because he asked him the third time, do you love me? And it said Peter was hurt. I mean, did Jesus blunder into that? No, Jesus doesn't blunder in anything. Did he intend to hurt him? Not ultimately, but he did intend to hurt him. It wasn't an accident. He wanted him to hurt. And, and he said he wanted to deal with him. He said, look, um, when you denied me three times, he didn't. there's no direct link between John 21 and the three times, do you love me, do you love me? But I think we all know that there's something with that number three, and there's an opportunity to kind of assert his love. Um, but yeah, I think here's what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit mortifies by causing us to hate our sin more, to grieve over it, to ramp up our feeling of it when, when it happens so that we're not numb to it. The Spirit has that ability to do that. Now, we also it says in, in Ephesians, it says, grieve not or do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean, to not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What is grief? I mean, you think about grieving, somebody who's grieving. What does that mean, grieving? How, how like big sorrow, small? Jason, what do you think? I mean, is that, is that a big deal, somebody's grieving? Yeah, it's serious. The Holy Spirit's an emotional being. And what would grieve him? Simple answer. Our sin. So as soon as you sin, the indwelling spirit grieves. Are you grieving at the same time? Not yet. But when he's done with you over that thing, you will be. That's his job. So that he brings you together to his emotional state and you feel grief over it. He breaks, breaks you concerning it so that you then you have a sense of grieving and, and yearning over it and sorrow over it. There's a sense of brokenness. Does that make sense? So the Spirit works that in us um, negatively. Positively, you've got the fruit of the Spirit. This is the first thing. This is what Owen leads with. He leads with positive, all right? How does the Spirit mortify sin? By causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh and leading us accordingly, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, that's immediately after the list of the acts of the flesh that we talked about. Remember with the witchcraft and the orgies and all that? A person filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't do those other things. You see what I'm saying? It's, there's this positive fullness. You're so full of the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, Christ-like virtues, that you can't do the sin, which you do out of emptiness and, and you know, a sense of, of yearning. And I mean, I, I think we sin when we're not full. We're not full of God, we're not full of Christ, we're not full of joy, full of energy, full of all those good things. You then are like a demon 
restless, roaming around like Satan said he was doing, going to and fro over the surface of the earth. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes to arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. There's a restlessness to sin and you're empty and you're looking for something, surfing the net, doing something, looking for something, you're empty. A person who's full of the Holy Spirit is filled with all these beautiful virtues. They're not gonna sin, you see? So it's a positive driving out, an expulsive work that the Spirit does so that the sin, the darkness is pushed out. Does that make sense? All right, so it's mostly, he starts positive. But, and then he says mysteriously, by a real physical efficacy or efficiency on the root and habit of sin for the weakening and destroying of it. I don't understand this, all right? I don't know what he means, but I can kind of understand it, all right? The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by spirit of judgment and fire. It's a fire image. Someone read Malachi 3, 2, and 3. Okay, so the sermon I wrote yesterday uh, for a number of weeks out was Jesus uh, cleansing the temple. Remember that? All right. Um, so that's quite a scene, isn't it? It's very physical. Jesus is overturning tables and benches and driving animals out. It's very, very physical. So I think there's a sense of fire uh, there's a sense of purity and holiness, like a zeal that comes on you, the Holy Spirit comes on where you, where you see sin as it is. Like you, when Jesus is doing this to the temple, what do you think the apostles are thinking? He's overturning tables. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? You've made it a den of thieves and all that. It's like, what do you think they're thinking as they see it? But imagine that night as I look back on it, they saw the temple in its present condition, the way that Annas had set up the whole corrupt system, in a way they'd never seen it before. That Jesus was right in what he did, right? Zeal for the house of God had consumed him. And so I think in the same way that the Spirit of Christ comes in you and starts showing you the mess, frankly. Showing you what's been going on for years and you never saw it properly. You didn't understand how much pride there was in most of your anger, your sinful anger. Most of your anger is not righteous anger like Jesus is there. Most of it's self-serving and prideful. And you start seeing it's really nasty. James calls it moral filth. Get rid of all moral sewage. Get rid of your anger. It is evil. So you think about that and all your conflicts, you're complaining. Like I, when I wrote my book on contentment, I looked at complaining in ways I'd never seen before and I did not realize how much I did it. And I didn't realize how offensive it was to God. So the Holy Spirit shows it to you and there starts to become a zeal inside you. It's like, I wanna get rid of the complaining out of my life. I don't wanna do that anymore, it's evil. So he starts to show it to you and, and takes effectively takes a whip in and drives out sin out of your life. There's this consuming, this cross of Christ. How would the cross of Christ cause us to mortify? The, the, the agonies, let's put it that way, the agonies of Jesus, how would that have a mortifying effect on our sin? The cost. Like, you did this, Jesus saying effectively, I'll pay for it in my blood. And you watch him go up, Calvary. I know he, sinned, he uh, died once for all. Don't think of him dying again and again and again. But that was how that sin was atoned for. Shouldn't that make us hate it more? That it did that to Jesus, that Jesus had to get nailed to the cross and have his blood pour out of his body for that sin? 
I mean, there's not, it's not like different categories. Well, he only died for my serious sins. No, he died for all of your sins. So all of your sin led to that. I have been crucified with Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me, right? So that, my sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus. That should make me hate it more, but that's what it cost. So med meditation on the cross of Christ. So I'm just describing ways that the Spirit mortifies. So the Spirit mortifies by a teaching ministry, right? You look at the list of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord. What is that? Discord. Yeah, disagreeing. So any of you married people? <laughs> Does that ever happen? Any discord? Not, not for you, Annie. Great, grateful to hear it. All right, all right, let me take it off of marriage. All you church people. Any discord in a local church? Some more than others, yeah. But it's discord, you know, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions. It's like you look at it and you're getting educated. The Holy Spirit's teaching you how he sees these things. And in that ministry of the word of God, there's a spotlight being shown on some things that you didn't think were a big deal, but they were, they are. And the Spirit educates and shows you and then you link it to the cross, and then so that's some of how the Holy Spirit mortifies. He causes you, in your right mind, to see sin as it really is. See, like I said, demonization, demon possession, the, 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 the individual is basically raped. It's like their will, you know, the demoniac of the Gadarenes, like I said, he's out of his mind. The Holy Spirit, it's the opposite. It's a therapeutic work. He's healing you from being out of your mind to being healthy. Now you're seeing sin clearly for the first time. Does that make sense? He's actually showing you the truth. His own holiness, your corruptions, the power of the blood of Christ for the cleansing of it, and his hatred of that sin and desire to move you out of it and change you. Does that make sense? So in that, like, like take the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So you know that in that parable, you've got a guy that's beaten up by some highway robbers and left, left for dead, but he's not dead. He's bleeding by the side of the road. And then you got the priest who sees him and walks by on the other side. Then you got the Levite who sees him and walks by on the other side. Then you got the Good Samaritan. Of what use are the priest and Levite to us? Are they beneficial to us? How can they help you? I know, but how can they help us? Are we gonna say, thank you, God, that I'm nothing like the priest or the Levite? I thank you that I'm like the Good Samaritan. That's who I am. Oh, now I'm gonna circle back and ask you again. How are the priest and Levite helpful to us? And the Holy Spirit says, guess what? You wanna find yourself in that parable? I'll show you who you are. From time to time, you're the Good Samaritan, but from time to time, you're like that priest and Levite. Do you think you ever walk by somebody who's hurting and who you could help, and you don't do anything to help them. It's like, well, how many times is there? So then you start saying, all right, Lord, show me times I'm walking by people I could help. I don't just mean financially. I mean somebody who's hurting, they're depressed, or they have a tragedy in their life or something, you just don't do much, just walk by. And so that's the use of them. And yes, they don't do anything right in the, in the parable, I understand, but they convict me. 
Does that make sense? They convict me. So the Spirit does it by an, a teaching ministry, an educational ministry. He also causes us to have right emotions about sin. We're like, I don't want to be the priest or the Levite. I want to be like the Good Samaritan, etc. All right, like I said, we're not going to finish it. You can read the rest of the handout, or you can, it's probably online, you can hack your way through Owen anytime you, you want, but it's, just, it's good, good material. So, Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.